0: My Life Now is a half-hour podcast show which regularly features reviews of new releases and all-time classics of both traditionally published and self-published books. Tune in for special guest interviews and, of course, helpful tips to not only write your next book, but also to help market it. My Life Now is most often referred to as a great way for authors to get quality exposure and avid readers to discover their next read. Without further delay, here's another stimulating episode of My Life Now. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of My Life Now. My name's Michael Patterson, and I will be tonight's host. Now, when I say My Life Now, what I mean is, my life now that I've read this book That has changed or affected or redirected or changed my paradigm, my outlook on life, the way I think. And tonight, I want to talk about a book that has done just that. So before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Before broadcasting, which by the way, (laughs) I'm extremely new at, I was a teacher, a language arts teacher, and a wrestling and track coach for 10 years. So the first time I read this book it was through that lens through the lens of an educator through the lens of a coach and let me tell you when i read this book it totally changed the way i approached coaching and how i approached teaching and then i had kids and i'll tell you what it changed the way that i parent so this book is special to me it was written back in 2008 so it's 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 a little older but i'll tell you what it was it was prolific then, it's prolific now. It's a well-known non-fiction book. The book is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And if you haven't read this, you're in for a treat. And it's something I believe everybody should read. No matter what field you're in, if you're a parent or not a parent, this book will change your life. So as soon as we're back from this commercial break, we're going to dive right into it. Let me tell you what gives me courage. Let me tell you what inspires me. Let me tell you what lifts me up and reminds me of my purpose. Jesus Christ, his word and his people. I love to hear how Jesus has worked in the lives of others and how he continues to work in them for his glory and his goodness. And that's what I get when I listen to Faith and Family Fellowship. Faith and Family Fellowship is a podcast that delivers hope and inspiration through interviews with authors, technology developers, founders of charities, online content creators, and many more. Regular people who are seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. So when I look for that extra spark of motivation, when I'm seeking more stories of the goodness of God, a place I tune in for daily uplifting is Faith and Family Fellowship, a Christ centered podcast. Subscribe to Faith and Family Fellowship today on every major podcast platform. All right, welcome back. So, let's dive right into Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I want to start off by talking about what an outlier is. Now, if you haven't heard that term, an outlier refers to someone who lies outside the norm. So, what's normal? Um, what people generally do, how they generally do. An outlier is outside that. So they're kind of the exception to the rule. So that's what an outlier is. Now the first thing he talks about in this book, the introduction to this book is about a small town named Rosetto in Pennsylvania. And this town is an outlier. And here's why. So he starts off talking about this physician named Stuart Wolf. And this is back in the 50s. And Stuart Wolfe is this doctor who's also a professor at a college. And he's at a speaking event, talking about something. And after the event, he sits down with a colleague and they're just sharing a few drinks. And the colleague tells him about this little town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. And the crazy thing about this little town is that it has no heart disease. No heart disease in the 50s, right? This is back when... Uh, There was no uh, medication for heart disease. You know, it, it, it was a giant problem. It still is today, but it was even more so back then. And so when Dr. Wolf heard about this place, he said, no way. There's no way that there's a town without heart disease. But his colleague is adamant. So what's Dr. Wolf do? He gathers a team. He grabs a whole bunch of med students. He grabs some sociology students, and he heads down uh, to investigate Rosetto. Now, the first thing they learn about Rosetto is it's a small town of European immigrants. So they came from this small town named Rosetto in Italy, and basically they all came over to America, started a quarry, laid the town out very similar to the way it was laid out back home in Italy— uh funnily enough they even you know the the main money maker for the town that fueled that economy was a quarry as well and here it was in america so in a sense they lived exactly as they had over in italy so dr wolf and his team head down there now put yourself in their shoes for a moment and and probably the first thing you're 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 thinking is okay well uh no heart disease so maybe it's their diet i mean they're from italy uh you know, uh, simple foods, olive oil, uh, homemade, homegrown ingredients. It's it's got to be diet. So let's let's look into that. And they did, and and they found that it wasn't that at all. In fact, uh, Rosettans were cooking with lard, and instead of their pizzas having olive oil and simple ingredients like sardines and onions and tomatoes, I mean, it was loaded with the old-fashioned American sausage and ham and all that good stuff, right? So so diets out. So at this point, they're like, well, it's got to be exercise, right? That's where we go. Usually we're thinking diet and exercise. But nobody in Rosetto was really getting up at 6 a.m. to go run five miles. I mean, exercise was not happening outside of work. And, in fact, a large uh, sample of the population there was obese even. Uh, And almost all of them smoked cigarettes. So this was just baffling to everybody. So – they're like, okay, well, let's check into... It's got to be the region, right? It's got to be this, this little place, this part of Pennsylvania. It's got to be like, like it's something in the water, right? It's got to be the region. And they look into that, and they find two towns right around Rosetto. I mean, within a few miles. Similar-sized towns come from hardworking European immigrant populations. Nope. Because the death rate in both of those towns from heart disease was three times higher. So at this point, Dr. Wolf is sitting back, trying to figure this out, scratching his head. He just can't figure this out. Because shockingly, he also found that suicide and addiction pretty much didn't exist in Rosetto either. And there was very, very little crime. (laughs) This place was almost like a, a utopia, real life utopia. So listen, let me jump to the end. Here's what they found. They found that it had nothing to do with the usual suspects for for heart disease. Here's what they found. Most homes had three generations living under one roof. Grandparents were given a huge amount of respect. They carried weight in those communities. It was just such a connected community. If you walk down the street to go to the grocery store, it was going to take you an hour at least because you're going down and pretty soon you're talking to your neighbor who was, you know, maybe your uncle's best friend who helped you out during this time. And you make it a little further. Next thing you know, you're talking to your little brother's best friend. I mean, this town was so connected. Everybody was connected. They had this this community that is just, to me, it's startling and, and incredible. I would love to see America have community like this again. But anyway, that's what they found. This was the one reason that heart rate pretty much didn't exist. Addiction didn't exist. Suicide didn't re- exist because of connection. And that's why this town was an outlier. Now, this is the introduction to the book, remember? And, and this is what he does throughout the whole book. He takes this idea of what we think. How we view the world, how we view success, how we view outliers, and he turns everything upside down. So, in these next coming chapters, you're going to hear him talking about Bill Gates. You're going to hear him talking about uh, minor league hockey. You're going to hear him talking about the Beatles. I mean, the list goes on, and he just takes these this concept of of what creates success and blows your mind with it. And that's what he's going to continue to do throughout this book. It's really great. So without further ado, let's move into chapter 1. Jumping into chapter 1 called the Matthew Effect. The Matthew Effect is named after the book of Matthew in the Bible, chapter 25, verse 29, which goes something like, He who has been given shall be given even more, and he who has not been given everything that he has shall be taken from him. So with that concept in mind, he goes into this story about how he and his wife were at this minor league hockey championship. Now, these are, you know, 17, 18-year-old Canadians who've been playing hockey since they were little kids, and uh, all these guys most of them are going to be in the NHL next year. So this is the this is a huge deal. This is a big game a lot of up and coming talent and he's sitting there and his wife's reading the program next to him and she turns to him and says, honey, did you notice something about this program? And he looks at it and he's like, no, I didn't, I don't, I don't see anything. And she goes, "Well, most of them are born in January, February, or March. So he looks at it and sure enough, the majority of them are born within this time period, and he's thinking, what in the world? Like, is this some astrology thing? What's What's going on? So he begins to look into this, and he starts kind of giving us an idea of what it takes to become one of these champions in Canadian minor league hockey. And they start, you know, when they're four or five, and what they'll do is in that league they'll take the more advanced kids and they'll put them in the advanced league and those kids are getting a few more hours of practice than uh the ones in the regular league they're getting a little bit better coaching their competitions a little tougher cuz they're playing against you know those advanced kids so they're getting more time in now this happens continually year after year they're sorted from you know, okay, now you're in this advanced league. Well, we're going to take the cream of the crop from the advanced league and put them in the advanced league next year, and the other ones will go back down to the regular league. Something like this. That's, that's kind of the picture that I get. And this happens all the way until they're 17, 18 years old. This is where it gets interesting. This is where the Matthew effect kicks in. So let's go back to those 4- and 5-year-old Canadian hockey-playing kids, right? And let's think about it. Who do who do they take? Who who's a little bit more advanced? Okay, the kids that are a little bit faster, a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, those are the kids that go to the, the advanced league. And from there they get all this better coaching, more practice, tougher competition. And it all started that first year of hockey just because they were a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Now, remember when we talked about how the wife discovered, wow, all these players, most of them were born January, February, March. Well, guess where the, the age cutoff was? For that league, the age cutoff in Canadian hockey, as in many, many other sports like soccer all around the world, the cutoff is January 1st. So if you're born January 1st or January 2nd, you're going to be the oldest kid in that league. Now think about this, because as an adult, there's not much difference between someone born in January and someone born in, say, November, right? But at four and five years old, think of where they're at developmentally, okay? A four-year-old who's born in January versus a four-year-old who's born in November of that same year, that's like, what, like eight, nine, ten months? 10 months, something like that. <laughs> Sorry, my math. I, I wasn't a math instructor. <laughs> but uh, Quite a few months older. And when you're that young, that makes a giant difference. Of course, they're going to be... A, think about the development that happens. Of course, they're going to be faster. Of course, they're going to be stronger. Of course, they're going to be bigger. That little time frame in a little kid makes a giant difference. And so just because you're born at a certain time You have a huge leg up on everyone else. So Matthew Effect, because you were given, right, you were given this birth date, all because of that, you're given more coaching, more practice, more tougher competition. You're given more and more and more. And it just keeps going, you know, keeps going. Next thing you know, you're, you're in the championships all because you were born at the right time. It didn't have to do with anything else. It's not like you were born with this God-given talent. Although, you know, I believe in that too, but, but the same kid who's 10 months younger than you, born in the same year, could have been born just as talented, just as gifted, but he didn't have that time to develop a little bit more. Right? So all that he has, has been taken from him. Hockey, pretty much out of his future. So it's I mean, incredible. A really interesting look at success using this example. Now, I'm sure your brain can take this other places, but this kind of stuff excites me. It's just kind of a new way to look at things. I love that. That's what this book will continue to bring. And before I jump into the next chapter, I want to finish with this. At the end of this chapter, they're interviewing the parent of the MVP of that championship hockey game. And they're asking about the kid. And, of course, the parents are like, well, you know, he worked so hard and he's always just been so talented. And he's had to just dig in for what he got. And that's true. But here's the telling part. Here's the telling part. They asked, hey, when, when did you get a sense that your son was, was special when it came to hockey? Here's what they said. You know, he was always a bigger kid for his age. He was strong. And he had a knack for scoring goals at an early age, and he was always kind of a standout for his age. A captain of his team. I'm sure the kid worked hard. Absolutely he did, there's no doubt about it. He worked his tail off to become the MVP of the Canadian Minor League Championships. But Malcolm Gladwell makes a great case for some other pretty big factors in success. So let's move on to the 10,000-hour rule. This is my favorite chapter right here um, out of the whole book. And and Again, I can't state it enough. This book is just filled with fantastic information, information that is going to have you thinking, well, my life now that I've read Outliers is a little different. So next chapter, the 10,000-hour rule. Now, if you haven't heard about this, you probably have. It's become uh, a little bit more... Well-known. And what the 10,000-hour rule is, it's the idea that it takes 10,000 hours of focused practice to become world-class, to become elite at anything, whether it's music, whether it's speaking, whether it's writing, whether it's sports, um, anything you can think of that that takes skill, 10,000 hours is what creates that. So one of the studies this chapter talks about fairly early in the chapter is this study done by K. Anders Ericsson. He was a psychologist, and what he did is he took, it was a study of violinists, and he took some violinists and he broke them into Group A, B, and C. Group A was your elite violinist, the best in the world. Group B was your good violinist. I mean, they were very good. And then Group C is, is your instructors, your teachers, who are good too, but they're not on the level with the very good, and they're not on the level with the elite. So, A, B, and C. And what he found was they were all about the same. They all practiced about the same amount. They were all, you know, new and learning uh, the violin instrument. Um, they were all about the same level, around five. But the real differences started to emerge at around eight. I'm going to read some of this right out of the book. So, here's what happened. This is super interesting. So, those who ended up the best began to practice about six hours a week by age nine and about eight hours a week by age 12 and about 16 hours a week by age 14 and up and up and up until uh, the age of 20, they were practicing purposefully practicing focused practice. They were practicing their instruments well over 30 hours a week. And in fact, by the age of 20, these elite performers totaled 10,000 hours of practice. 10,000 hours, the elite, right? And this is kind of cool, too, because um, the ones who were in Group B, the good ones, they totaled right around 8,000 hours. And the future music teachers, the ones that are all right, uh, Group C, you know, they had just over 4,000 hours practice. Boom. That blew my mind right there. I That information still <laughs> excites me to read that. And the chapter continues uh, getting even more interesting. It, it talks about Bill Gates. It talks about the Beatles, how this 10,000-hour rule contributed to their success, to them becoming the greatest in their prospective fields. Uh, let's look at the Beatles first. Many, many people around the world think the Beatles are one of the greatest contributors to rock and roll, if not the greatest contributors to rock and roll music as it is today. And this book goes into kind of their origin story. Um, The Beatles were just this band. They were unheard of, pretty much. And kind of the idea behind it is this uh, producer comes over to England and he's looking for some guys to bring back to Germany because he has this brilliant idea that hey, you know we're gonna get bands playing 24 hours a day at these strip clubs in Berlin, and um, this is gonna be a great money maker. So he, you know, he recruits the Beatles, brings them down there, and while they're there, they are performing eight hours a day, seven days a week. Can you imagine that? Eight hours a day, seven days a week performing. That's not even talking about practice together. We're just talking about strictly performing. Can you imagine what that would do to your game? You would level up so quickly. And that's what they did. Uh, They did a few different tours. I I believe it was three tours down in Berlin at these strip clubs uh, performing that much at a time. And they came back to England. All of a sudden, they were good. People are like, who are these people? They came out of nowhere. No, they didn't come out of nowhere. They they racked up thousands of hours in music. Again, that's not including practice. That's just performing in a short amount of time, right? Um, so this chapter continues to explain and give evidence to this 10,000-hour working for the Beatles. And then it goes into Bill Gates. And Bill Gates, uh, it's so cool, guys. Uh, he goes to this school. Uh, I believe it was middle school in Lakeside, uh, Washington, up by Seattle, not far over there. And this is in the 1960s, mind you, so computers, the computer world was nothing at all like it is today. But anyway, at his school, they happened to have a computer club, and this was at a time when computer clubs at colleges were extremely rare. So he's at a school in middle school that has a computer club, he's racking up his hours, Uh, putting in hours there, Um, and then it was just like a string of opportunities that popped up for him. The computer club eventually runs out of money, but uh, one of the kids in the club's mother worked at this company that opened up their doors to these students to come in and basically sit down and do some programming for them, testing their products out. That goes under. Next thing you know, Bill Gates hears about University of Washington, an opportunity to go, to go up there and practice programming. He's doing all this stuff as a kid, right, racking up hours, hundreds of hours. And he put his time in, but he definitely had that Matthew effect going on as well, you know, um, by being born where he was at the right time, in the right place. And he keeps getting these fantastic opportunities, which he takes And by the end of the chapter, Malcolm Gladwell shows you how Bill Gates really racked up 10,000 hours. That's what it took for him to become the great, incredible man of technology as we know him today. 10,000 hours. So I could spend hours talking about this book. I'm going to flip to the table of contents here real quick and just uh, read you some of the chapter titles just so you have an idea So that was uh, chapter two was the 10,000 hour rule. You've got chapter three and four are all on the trouble with geniuses, Uh, kind of that idea that we have about, well, if you're a genius, you know, you can do whatever you want. If you're a genius, you're going to be a millionaire. If you're a genius, you're going to be exceptional. And he goes into that, we'll call it a myth for lack of a better word right now, but he, he breaks down that that myth, and and just shows you the truth about geniuses. Guys, this is fantastic information. I cannot tell you uh, enough times. You should read this book. It's going to change the way you look at things. Let's see. Let's jump ahead a few chapters. Uh, Chapter 6, Harlan, Kentucky, die like a man, like your brother did. That just sounds interesting, right? Uh, Hopefully this is capturing your attention. Uh, Chapter 7, The Ethnic Theory of Plane Crashes chapter eight rice patties and math tests folks this book is fantastic I cannot recommend it more but we're running out of time and I just want to say thank you for listening I hope that this podcast brought you something new opened up your eyes to maybe your next read that's what I'm shooting for that's what I hope for you I hope that you read this book and that it has the impact on your lives and the way that you think and the way that you view the world that it did for me So thank you for tuning in to My Life Now. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening and supporting another episode of My Life Now. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast show and share it with a friend. Together, we can keep the message of these books alive. Until we turn the next page together, stay classy.